So the person teaching and the people leading the music don't always talk before we sing songs, um, and that's cool. It, it's, um, and it's just kind of how we do things. Some places they do talk, and that's great, um, but we, we don't hear, um, and it leads to cool moments like singing that song, um, which has been, I didn't know that that's what I was praying for this morning, but, <clears throat> but it was, um, saying about how the Word of God is a light that shines in the darkness of our hearts. Um, and it searches our hearts, um, and how the Word of God is a sword that pierces our souls. Um, but as it pierces our souls, it, it leads to making us whole. And so um, that's been my prayer for this morning as I've um, been getting ready to, to finish up Second Corinthians with us. We've been on this several-month journey through the books of First and Second Corinthians, and today we're going to finish it. Um, and I'm just praying that the, that the Lord would, would help us end it well with closure, um, and that we'd really understand who we're supposed to be in Jesus um, based on what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians. So um, before we jump into the passage this morning, I just need to give you a disclaimer that I'm going to set lay a little groundwork, and that's going to take a few minutes um, before we actually get to the passage. And so if we're like 15 minutes in and we haven't like read the passage, I'm going to get there, I promise. Just hang with me. Um, I think it's really crucial that, that I lay this groundwork for us this morning. Um, but I pray that you don't see the, the groundwork is like a ramp up to the message and we're going to get there. It's just like kind of listen and pay attention to what I'm going to say first. Um, I really believe that maybe the biggest truth that God wants to drop in our midst this morning um, is, this, is this setup. And so now that I've way oversold that, um, let me kind of get started. Um, so there's really one big idea that I think we need to talk about this morning from Second Corinthians chapter 13. Um, and and that, I'm just going to give it to you from the start. And the idea is this, that who you are truly, who you truly are, is the defining truth of your life. Same thing for me. Who I am truly is the defining truth of my life. Now, that who you are, that's underneath what you say, underneath what you do, underneath who you're married to or where you live. Um, underneath all of that, there, there's a kernel, there's a nugget of, of being and that being is the defining truth of your life. In our Foundations book, we say it this way. Everything we think, say, believe, know, or do flows out of who we are. Flows out of who we are. So who we are truly, I'm going to get to that truly point in a moment, is incredibly important. In fact, I think it's one of the most important things about each one of us. Let me give you a silly example to make this really clear. Um, so say you and your family needed to buy a new refrigerator. What would you say is the most important thing about the refrigerator? Maybe that it keeps your milk cold. Um, maybe that it's got a freezer at the bottom so you can see everything in it. That's really important to some people and like the two doors and a place for the milk and the shelves and the rack for the cheese. Um, all those things are pretty important. But I would say that the most important thing about a refrigerator is that it is, in fact, a refrigerator and not, say, an oven. Probably pretty important. So I know it's silly, but just, just track with me. Say, say you go to Sears or somewhere and you buy a refrigerator and say, okay, we'll deliver it tomorrow. And they show up with your refrigerator, but it's instead of being this tall, it's about this tall. And it's only got one door and some racks. And it's weird. You haven't seen a refrigerator like this before, but maybe it's the new trend. And so you take your milk and your eggs and your leftovers and you put it in your refrigerator, which is really an oven, and you leave it overnight. And you wake up in the middle of the night to the fire alarm because all of the plastic has melted on the bottom of the coils of your oven because it's not indeed a refrigerator. So, very silly example, but I, mean, I, I hope that paints the picture that a refrigerator has to be a refrigerator to act like a refrigerator and to do the things that a refrigerator actually does. And in the same way, maybe not in the same way, but who you are at, at the core of your being is probably the most important thing about you. So, at the, the big question that's on the table is who are you? Who are you? And there's two frameworks that we're going to look at answering this question from. The first one's going to be in the setup, and the second one's going to be from 2 Corinthians 13. Um, and 
we're, we're going to hopefully dig in and, and have you have, have a really strong answer to that question of, of who are you. Um, so I really believe that truth, that the most important thing about you is who you are. Um, and you may say, well, isn't the most important thing about me what God says about me? Yes, um, but God always tells the truth. And so what God says about you is going to be the truth about who you are. So I hope that makes sense. But it's not that way because I say it is or because I'm preaching. Um, It's that way because this is how God has designed us and how God has designed the universe to function. And so I want to take just a minute, actually probably a few minutes, and try and explain uh, why God would have shaped the world in such a way that that the truth of you, that the core being of who you are, is the most important thing about you. And we're also going to explain what I mean when I say who you are. So why does it matter so much who you are? Well, I believe that's because God has purpose for life, his purpose for your life, and he has purpose for every life on the planet. And I'm not talking about on the level of like employment, what you're going to do, or relationship, who you're going to marry, or who you're going to be friends with, or even the the purpose of of where you live. I'm really talking on on a higher level here, a much larger, a much more expansive level, um, one that goes all the way down to the purpose for which God created the universe, for which he created you, and for which he's redeeming us, and the purpose for which Jesus is returning for us. And if I could sum all of that up into like a sentence, which I'm not totally sure I can do, I would say that the purpose of God is this, is to display his glory. His glory being the beautiful picture of who he is, his infinite love, his worth, his greatness, and his goodness. God's purpose is to take all of that and to, and to radiate it, to show it, to display it. I'm going to tell you just a couple of passages in the Old Testament to, to hopefully prove that to you, that God's purpose is to display his glory. Um, the first two are in Isaiah chapter 43. Um, in verse 6, God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So God is saying that he created people for his purpose, which is to glorify himself. In verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So God created us for his glory, and we see that he is forgiving people for his glory. And in Isaiah chapter 48, God says six times that he is doing things in the world for his own purpose, his glory. It says this in verse 9 through 11 of Isaiah 48, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of, my afflict- of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? I will not share my glory with another. Everything God does is for the purpose of his glory. And we see that in the New Testament too. Just a few places there. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, God predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, According to the purpose of his will, here it comes, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So the purpose of God's will is that we would see the grace of God and praise his glory and say, wow, God, you are great. You are full of grace. You are amazing. In verse 12, it says, we who first hoped in Christ have been predestined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory, created for the glory of God, and we're supposed to live for the glory of God. And then in verse 14, it says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God has given us an inheritance, and when we come into the the fullness of our inheritance in Jesus, that will also be to praise the glory of God. So God's purpose, in an ultimate sense, is to display his glory, which just happens to be the truth about himself. So when God is displaying his glory, he's telling the truth about who he truly is, and who he truly is is really, really good. So I want you to think back to creation and see that God himself is displaying his glory, but he's also put his image in us to display his glory. God, who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect in in their unity together, were always satisfied in one another and didn't need anything. But they chose in in their perfect love and perfect community to create the world, not because they needed to be validated or needed to feel good, but because they wanted to share the love and community that, that God had in himself with us. And so God created the world. And specifically, he created us 
in his likeness, to be like him. Not to be God, but to be like him and to bear his image. To bear his image. And in doing that, we see that God, who is the most valuable and worthy person to ever exist, is glorified. And and by that I mean that he receives glory for the magnificence of his creation. Because if God is truly the most valuable person in the world, the most beautiful and perfect and magnificent person in the world, then the best thing that could come from that would be for there to be more reflections of his goodness, more of his glory if, if there could be, more of it. And so the purpose of God is to display the truth about himself, his glory, and he has placed in each of us his image so that we would be reflectors of who he is. So God's passionate about his glory being, being magnified or being displayed, and he, in order to accomplish some of that, has put his image in us so that we would reflect the glory of God to, uh, to the world and back to God himself. So it is incredibly important who I am and who you are because the glory of God and the purposes of God are on the line. The problem is that the image of God in us was broken when sin entered the world. And now our reflections are misrepresenting the truth of God's character. Yeah, there's still some goodness in us and the image of God is still inside of us, but it's broken and what it's reflecting is not the truth about God. And so if you ever wondered why God is angry about sin, why he has wrath stored up for sin, well, it's because that sin fundamentally is against God's purpose. Sin sin lies about God and it attacks the very image and reality of who God is. And sin also separated us. We are created for community with God. And sin has, has pulled us apart from that. Pulled us apart from the relationship we are created for. And so the day that sin entered into the world, um, there, there became a new answer to the question, who am I? You see, but before, when, when Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, perfect in the garden, before the, the serpent showed up and they ate the fruit and fell into sin, there was one answer. You know, who are you would be answered, well, I'm, I'm the perfect image bearer of God. I'm holy, I'm I'm righteous, I'm perfect. I was created for God's glory and I'm perfectly reflecting his image and magnifying his magnificence in the world. I am forever in relationship with him. I am alive. But as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, there became a second answer to that question. And it went something like this. I'm an enemy of God. I'm full of sin. I have rebelled against the good and perfect love of my good and perfect father. I'm making decisions for myself. I I think I know what's best, but I'm walking in darkness. I'm separated from God, unholy, unrighteous, and deserving of God's wrath and punishment. I am dead in my sins, and I have no hope. Now, I don't know that Adam and Eve could have fully said that. I don't know that they were able to tell the truth about their spiritual reality at that moment. But that's where the truly part of this phrase comes in, that who they were truly was the defining truth of their life. And if they were able to tell the truth, that's what they would say, that they are dead in their sins and had no hope. The the day that Adam and Eve sinned, all of humanity moved from being answer A, I'm alive, to being I'm dead in my sin. And the crazy thing is that the first answer was now taken off the table because it was no longer possible to be alive in Jesus because everyone was born into sin and born into death. You and I were all born dead. So there now was still only one true reality of who we are and it was not pretty. But God's purpose is never to be thwarted. We were created for his glory, and God would return in in Jesus, his son, to redeem us unto his glory. And um, on the day that Jesus came back, um, there's another answer to the question, and that's where we're we're headed. And um, probably the most important answer to this question that could ever be asked. Um, From the first day, from the day that Adam and Eve sinned, God was already at work. He already had a plan in motion. He was working and weaving the history of the world so that men and women like you and me could put our faith in in Jesus and come back to life, which at that point was totally impossible because death reigned through sin. 
So most of you know the story, but God the Father sent God the Son in human flesh and blood like you and I to live perfectly as we were created to do but could not because sin had messed us up. Jesus lived and taught in perfect harmony with God, the way you and I were created to live. He never displeased God. He never rebelled against God. He never sinned. And he was the first person since our first parents to truly answer the question, who am I, with, with the answer, I am alive. I'm connected with God like I'm supposed to be. But despite Jesus' perfect love and grace and humility and authority, the world did not receive the Son of God. But instead, they unjustly captured him, beat him, and hung him on a cross. But in doing so, they fulfilled the very purpose of God, which God had set out from the first day of sin. To redeem everyone even those people from their own sinful humanity. On the cross, God the Father punished Jesus for the sins of the world. God the Son received the full wrath of God for for the sins of the whole world. He experienced separation and death for the first time in all of eternity. But he would not remain dead even though he would die. You know, three days in the grave and Jesus would come back to life. The perfect son of God, by the power of God, would conquer death and render it powerless. And in doing so, Jesus would make a way for you and for I to to have the same answer that Jesus had. I am now alive. I, I was dead, but I'm now alive. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the gospel. And this is our only hope of life. Because of God's glorious work in Jesus, there's now another option available to you and to I. And it goes like this. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Yes, I was an enemy of God. I was full of sin. I did rebel against the good and perfect will of my good and perfect father. I made decisions for myself. I thought I knew it was best. I was walking in darkness. I was separated from God, unholy, unrighteous, deserving of God's wrath and punishment. I was dead in my sins, and I had no hope. But Jesus has changed all of that. I believe him. I believe he saved me. I believe he loves me. I believe that he is my only hope for true, abundant life. I trust him to take care of me. I trust him to keep me. I trust him to provide for me. I was dead, but my hope is in Jesus, and now I am alive. Jesus made it possible for anyone to return to God anyone to return to who God created us to be. And this is the meaning of redemption, of of restoration, of reconciliation. And this is our salvation that is accomplished by God, not by us. Through faith in Jesus. Not because of anything we did or can do or could even imagine doing, but it's God's gift to us. And so now, thanks to Jesus, in an ultimate sense, there are two answers to the question, who are you? And if you dig down, you have, you're forced to truly tell the truth about yourself and answer one of two ways. Either I'm dead in my sin, separated from God, against his glory, misrepresenting who he is, or I'm alive in Jesus for the display of God's incredible glory. So the answer to that question is of utmost importance to each one of us. It's the question of salvation. In theological terms, it's the question of justification. Are you declared righteous in Jesus? Are you still dead in your sin? So that's the first framework to look at this question, and probably the most important framework for us to look at the question this morning is, have you trusted Jesus? What, where are you spiritually? Are you alive in Jesus? Or are you dead in your sins? And it's the implication of this question that has caused Paul so much anguish in the church of Corinth. Because they are claiming, they're, they're, they're digging down and saying, okay, truly we're alive in Jesus. But Paul's looking at their life and saying, this doesn't match up. I mean, you think about the things we've read in, they're, they're, they're fighting, they're um, not sharing the, the meals they have, they're, they're coming to the, the Lord's table drunk. Um, we read that crazy story about the, the guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Like, those things do not sound like the glory of God to me or to Paul. 
And that's why he was so frustrated with them and and in such distress that they get their life in line with what they were claiming the truth about them was. So that brings us to the to the second framework that I want to talk about. Um, and then we're actually going to look at Second Corinthians, so we're going to get there. I promise. Um, and so, there, like I said, there's two frameworks to answer this question: Who are you? Um, we talk about the first one. The first one's about our position in Jesus. And you take one of two places now because of Jesus. You are either dead in your sins or alive in Jesus. All of us start dead in our sins, and when we come to faith, when we trust in Jesus, we pass out of death and into life. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He has passed out of death and into life and shall not come into judgment. And so once you come alive in Jesus, that never, ever, ever changes. Jesus also says, everyone that the Father gives me, I will keep until the end. So that's not going anywhere. God says he's given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And the Spirit's never going to leave us or forsake us. And so once you're alive, you are alive. And that doesn't ever change. And I I need to be really, really, really clear about that. That your salvation in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, is dependent on him and not on you. And, and, and And if we don't get that this morning, if we don't get that we are secure in our life in Jesus, if you've trusted him, then we can't move on to talk about the second framework, which is really what Paul was trying to get at in our passage this morning. And the second framework is this. If the first one's about our position in Jesus, the second is about our practice of faith. If you're dead, you're excluded from being alive. And so nobody's really going to talk about how you're living. So if, if you're alive, there's now a second category of, of question that's being posed to you. And, and the question goes like this. Who are you in your relationship with God? Put another way, what does the practice of your faith look like? Are you in fellowship with God or have you let sin break your fellowship with God? Here's where we've got to be careful. We see the Bible talks about sin grieving the Holy Spirit and how we can be I'm going to use the word separated, which is probably too strong a word, but sin can separate us from God, break our fellowship with God in in our practical life, and our fellowship. But just because we have sin in our life that has not been confessed and God hasn't uh, cleansed us from practically does not change anything about our spiritual state, our spiritual reality, our position in Jesus. So it is very possible, like some of the Corinthians, that they are alive in Jesus but living in sin, doing dumb things, disobeying God, causing quarrel and strife, they're still, they're still saved. That, doesn't, that hasn't changed. But the way they're living doesn't line up with who they are. And so what we're going to see this morning in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 is that Paul is going to appeal to who they are in Jesus. The fact that they are alive in Jesus He's going to call them up to that. He's going to say, you got to start living like you are in Jesus. And what we're going to see is that Paul, Paul's appeal to them isn't work really hard and try to like be worthy of this. It's no, no, embrace your being rescued by Jesus, perfect son or daughter of God, and let that work out into your life. So that's a lot of setup, but um, I, th- I think it's crucial that we come to the table understanding that there's two kinds of questions, and um, each one of us has to answer the first one. Do you trust Jesus? Have you come to life? Do you, are you willing to tell the truth about who you are? And, and if you have, there's now another question for you to answer. Who are you in your relationship with Jesus? And the way we're going to talk about that question for the rest of this morning, um, the, the big theological word is sanctification, or the process of being made holy, um, but we're just going to use the word maturity, because I think that we, we all get that. We've all uh, had little siblings or friends or cousins or the kids around here, and they've done something dumb, and it's like, well, they're two. Like, like of, of course they have. Um, if I were to do something dumb like that, you'd be like, that's not okay, because Cody, you're 24, and you should be a little more mature than that. Um, and, and, and that's the heart of this idea that we're going to look at. So um, let me pray for us quickly. I know we're like, I don't know, way into this, but um, let me pray. And then we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 13. Um, Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that it, thanks for this light that shines into our hearts. And I just pray this morning, Father, that by the power of your spirit, you would shine the light into our hearts and you'd help us truly answer the question of who we are. 
Father, if we haven't answered the question about who we are in you positionally, um, God, I just pray that the truth of the gospel of Jesus would just fall on us, that your spirit would open our eyes to see Jesus. We would trust you. Father, for those of us who have come alive in Jesus, I just ask that you would press us on into maturity and that your spirit would lead us there this morning and that you'd use these words of Paul to help us grow up. So Jesus, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So finally, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read it and then we're going to look at what Paul has to say. Um, So we saw last week at the end of chapter 12, um, Paul's defending his authority, and he continues that into chapter 13. He says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but is mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we pray for also, that you would be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which God gave me for building up not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So two, vo- two, two voices, two verses I want to point out to you um, from the very beginning that, that set the stage for us to talk about maturity. I mean, the first one is part of, a very key part of verse 5. Um, Paul says right in the middle, he says, test yourself. And he says, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? This is exactly what I was saying a minute ago, that Paul, in, in all of his arguing to them to try to convince them that they need to live in a manner worthy of, of their calling, The way he's doing that is not this checklist of here's all the bad things you're doing and you need to start making them better. He is doing that to prove to them that they are not who they should be. They're not acting like they should act. But he says the way he's going to go about accomplishing that is he's going to call their attention to the the reality that they are in Jesus. And more importantly, that Jesus himself is in them. And then in verse 9, I think Paul kind of shows his hand and he gives it away. He says, here's our prayer. He says, We also pray that you would be made complete. Complete. Some of your translations may say perfect. The New Living Translation says mature. Um, And ESV says this. It says, we pray for your restoration. And so if you've got that translation, um, that actually may be my favorite, even though it's a little strange. Um, Not strange. But it says, we pray for your restoration. And what he's saying is that we pray that you would be made as you ought to be. We pray that you would be brought into line with the true reality of your spirit, that you would be mature, that you would be mature. So God's big purpose, like we said earlier, is for him to be glorified. And the way that's accomplished now because of sin and the, and the life of Jesus and the gospel is that you and I are being transformed into something. God pulled us out of death into life, and he's got purpose for us now. And that purpose is really clearly laid out by Paul in Romans chapter 8, um, He says this, he says in verse 38 and 39, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Here's up, purpose of God. For those whom he foreknew, who he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. So here's what God's saying. God's purpose in saving you and now moving you along the track of maturity 
is to, to grow you up into Jesus, to conform you into the image and the likeness of Jesus. So that Jesus would be the firstborn among a bunch of other people that look like him, that glorify God, that, that truly reflect who God truly is. Paul says it again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. He's talking about how the leadership of the church is given to build the saints up in ministry. And he says, this will continue until we all come to such unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son that we are mature in the Lord. Purpose is maturity. Measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And so the goal of our sanctification, the goal of our maturity, is to make us look like Jesus. Make us look like Jesus. So I just want to make three points that I think Paul makes in in this chapter that will help us understand how we mature um, and will hopefully set our church on a trajectory to become more mature, to be sanctified more, to be more like Jesus so that we can glorify God. So the first point, maturity starts with telling the truth. Maturity starts with telling the truth. I want to use salvation as an example because Paul says in Corinthians that just like you came to Jesus, you're going to continue in Jesus. So it's the same, the same process of salvation as sanctification. Um, and it starts with telling the truth about yourself. Telling the truth about who you are truly. Not, it's really easy to lie to yourself. It's really easy to, to pretend that you're something that you're not, to think you're doing okay or to hide a little piece of your life somewhere. So before, before you came to know Jesus, if you've met Jesus already, um, you, the, the story in your head went, you know, I'm probably fine. I'm really not that bad a person. Or maybe I am, but I don't believe that God actually exists. Or there's not really a hell. Or God's not going to punish me. He, doesn't, he, he wouldn't do that if he did exist. Whatever you, you believed, whatever you said, it wasn't the truth. Because God is true, and what God says is the truth. And so you disagreed with God. Whether, whether you did that to his face or not, you disagreed with, with God. And when you, when you met Jesus, when you had your eyes open to the reality of the gospel, you, you changed your mind. <laughs> you said, okay, I, I see now that, that Jesus is God, and that's true about him, which is what God says about him, and that he came and that he died in my place, which means that I must have been a sinner. And even though I thought I wasn't really that bad, I must have been a whole lot worse than I thought I was because Jesus, the Son of God, came and he died for me and okay, God, I, I, I'm a sinner and I, 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 get, I trust you. Like, save me, please. That's what you say is the only thing that's going to rescue me from sin and death. And you changed your mind and you started saying the same thing that God said. You told the truth about yourself and about God. In case you're wondering, that's what the word repent means to change your mind, literally change your mind. The word confess means to agree with or to say the same thing. So you repented and you confessed, changed your mind, you said the same thing that God said about you and about him. And you came to life. Like, that. that's what happened. And in the same way, maturity starts as we tell the truth about ourselves, about God. We've got to tell the truth about ourselves. In, in, in 1 John, he talks about how um, things that are hidden in the darkness can't be dealt with. Once things are brought to the light, once you, once you tell the truth about them, okay, now we can do something about that can do something about that. And um, that, that's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 13. So if you look, he says, this is the third time I'm going to come to you. He's like, I've been around, but I'm going to come back, and every fact is going to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So I've been there twice, I'm coming a third time, and that's going to establish the, the truth of what's happening in you. So if you don't want to own up to, to the fact that you are not who you should be right now, I'm going to show up and I'm going to make you face the truth, because I've got the authority of God on my side. Verse 2, he says, I've previously said when I was present the second time, and now that I'm absent again, I say to those people who have previously sinned, oh, and to everyone else, that if I come, I'm not going to spare anyone. You are all going to have to face the reality of who you truly are. This isn't what Paul wanted. We've seen that. He's like, and he doesn't want to show up. He doesn't want to be harsh with them. He doesn't want to like beat, beat him down a little bit and say, guys, you've got to pay attention. You've got to, you've got to tell the truth about this. You can't keep lying about who you are. But he's willing to do it, as we'll see later, because it's best for them. And it's best for the glory of God. Paul says, yeah, you're seeking proof of Christ in me. 
they, they, had, they had some problems. They, they were like, well, Paul's not really all that like, aggressive. He's not like, really loud and rambunctious. Uh, he doesn't make us pay him, so he must not be that good. He doesn't really have <clears throat> the authority of God. They're trying, they're trying to, to find like, why he would be worthy of this. And Paul says, guys, you're, you're looking at this all wrong. He says, Christ is not weak towards you, but he's mighty in you. He's saying that, that weakness in, in the kingdom of God is not a bad thing. Verse 4, Jesus was crucified in weakness, crucified because of weakness, but it was in his weakness that the power of God was displayed. So, and so Paul says, verse 3, Christ is not weak towards you. It, the fact that I'm being gentle and loving and trying to, to coax you into a place of repenting and telling the truth about yourself isn't, isn't because Christ is weak. It's because he's very strong in you and you with the power of God by the Holy Spirit inside of you, should be able to tell the truth about yourself. I, I shouldn't need to come along and like display the authority that I have. But I will if I have to, is what he's saying. Because we are also weak in him, but we will live because of the power of Jesus. Maturity starts by telling the truth about yourself, and that truth is you are weak. I am weak. I am still sinful, even though God has rescued me and redeemed me and put me in Jesus. There's a lot of work to do. And, 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 if, and if you aren't willing to admit that, if you can't say that about who you truly are, then, then you need the help of the power of the Holy Spirit of God in you to reveal that to you. And it's the word of God as it searches your heart and as it pierces your soul that's going to bring about that brokenness and that surrender to the process of being made like Jesus. John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, puts it this way. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The truth is we are weak. And I think for me, sometimes it's hard to to say that or to admit it because for some reason, I think that God's going to be angry. I think that he's like going to be frustrated with me like I am when my little 13-year-old sister does something dumb and isn't like as grown up as I think she should be. But that's not the reality. John goes on, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And and if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. What John's saying is that when you tell the truth about yourself to God, you have an advocate. And this advocate isn't going to, he's not up in heaven like trying to diminish what you did, trying to make it look smaller so God doesn't see him get angry. He's magnifying what he has done and his redemption for you. And so we've got to tell the truth about ourselves. We've got to tell the truth about ourselves. And the way we do that, Paul lays out in verse 5, and he's, he's challenging the Corinthians. He says, I want you to tell the truth about yourself, and uh, maybe the only way to get you there is for me to bring a pretty heavy charge and to say, test yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. And, and you hear that, and you're like, Paul, I'm a little offended. Like, I, I, I'm, in the, I know, I'm in the faith. He's like, are you really? Because I'm looking at your life, and, and there's, there's only two options. Either you are truly alive in Jesus but you're sinning, and so you gotta, you got to confess your sin so that you can get back on track following with Jesus and maturing in Jesus. Or maybe you never actually met Jesus, and you're still dead in your sins. And so you got to test yourself, bro. You, you, you've got to answer this question. So two ways we can be in the faith. The first is the position question. Am I alive in Jesus? Am I in faith? Am I trusting God or am I out of faith? And I, I, don't, I don't want to raise that question this morning to like raise doubts in your head. Um, I know a lot of time, like as a kid, I met Jesus at a young age and kind of through like puberty, which lots of things happened then, but um, got like had lots of questions like, Jesus, am I really yours? Am I really in the faith? And I don't know, I did this thing and that was dumb or like I did a blah, blah, blah and that was sinful and so I just don't know if I'm saved. Like, please, please help me. 
Um, and, and some of that angst is good. Some of that like challenges you to actually confirm the fact that you're with Jesus. But I don't raise that question this morning to, to, to knock you off the tracks. But I raise the question this morning, are you in faith? Where, where are you? Who are you, alive or dead? To make sure that you are confident in your salvation. That you are confident in your salvation. And to do that, you have to examine yourself. And um, that's what the table's here for every week, whether you, whether you realize that or not. Um, and as we get to the end today, I think I'm just going to give you some practical ways about how to use the bread and the cup to ask the question and to examine yourself. So that's the first way about position. Are you in the faith? Um, and the second is about the, the, the practice. Are you in this moment, in this week, in this month, in faith? Are you living with trust towards God? Are you full in your relationship with God? Are you walking in fellowship with your spirit? The second question, like we talked about, for the, for the people who are alive, also has to be answered. We have to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We have to examine ourselves consistently recognizing that Jesus Christ is alive in us if you've trusted in Jesus, unless you fail the test, Paul says. And so that, that's a serious consideration to bring to the table. Um, Jesus, have you really saved me? Um, and, and if not, that can happen this morning, um, and you can come to life in him forever. So we're going to come back to this idea. We're going to come back to testing ourselves um, towards the end. So I hope you see that the first thing that maturity requires, it starts with us telling the truth about ourselves and telling the truth about God. The second thing is that maturity requires authority. <clears throat> maturity requires authority. Maturity is not primarily learned. You don't just kind of pick it up. Like, your, your kid doesn't learn to potty train on their own. They don't just figure out how to do that. They don't just learn to write. They don't, like, learn how to be a great, nice citizen and person and friend. Um, maturity is the exact same way. It's not primarily learned, it's primarily taught, it's shaped, it's molded, it's developed, it's imparted, first by God, through the power of his Holy Spirit in you, but also by godly men and women in the church. Maturity takes time, but maturity also takes an example to follow. It takes discipline and it takes love. And so that's why one of the reasons that God has structured the church as he structured it, so that you and I would have the context to sit under the authority of someone who's watching our lives and caring for us and pointing out that the things that don't line up with who we truly are and challenging us to get those in line, not to do differently, but to embrace who Jesus has made us and let the true reality of who we are feed into every part of our life. If you have some pastoral gifting in you, uh, that you're really, really good at this. Um, the God, God gave the gifts of, of pastoring to the church so that people would uh, grow up and be mature. But each one of us is expected to participate in the process of maturity, whether or not we are gifted at it. And we've got to participate from two lenses. Um, one, most importantly, we have to be receiving maturity from other people as we sit under the authority of our leaders. Um, and, and that submission part is, is crucial, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but just saying that uh, having authority, the fact that it exists isn't enough. You have to personally choose to put yourself under authority, because if you don't, if you don't submit yourself to authority, you can run away when things get tough. You, you, you can get out of town and forget. Somebody points out sin in your life and you go, ha I don't really care because you, you don't own me. You're not in charge of me. Um, and we see biblically that in the church, in fact, God has tasked the leaders with uh, the, the responsibility for their people's souls. I can take you to Acts, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 10 to see that, that God is going to require of the leaders that they give an account for the souls of the people. And so whether you submit to it or not, uh, the, the leaders of this church are responsible for your soul if you're part of this. And so please submit, please listen, so that uh, they will be able to give a good account to God for that. And I hope you see why, that, why that's required. Not, not, it'd be nice if you had authority in your life, but required. Because if, if you're not under someone's authority, you're not going to listen to what anybody has to say to you about the, the, the problems in your life, the pieces of your life that don't line up with who you are. And that was the issue that Paul was facing here. 
with the Corinthians. That's why he spends like chapters and chapters defending his authority because the Corinthians are sitting there saying, yeah, well, Paul, you don't really have any power. You, you can't really say anything to us. Like, who are you? We're, we're, we're doing fine. Leave us alone. Paul says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 13, he says, I trust that you will realize that we do not fail the test. <laughs> so, so just from a basic level, Paul's saying, we are in faith, whether you are or not. And that gives us some authority, period. Verse 7, he says, now we pray to God that you do no wrong. That's our hope. As, as your authority, we're just hoping that you would do the right thing. New Living Translation says it this way, which I think is extremely helpful. It says, we pray to God that you, would do, that you would not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come, even if it makes it look like we have failed to demonstrate our authority. So what Paul's saying, he says, I care about you so much that I'm not... It's not necessary for me to rambunctiously demonstrate authority and come and yell and scream and flip tables and beat on people and point them out in front of everybody. That, that would be a powerful display of authority and, and hopefully would accomplish some, some good things. But what Paul hopes for the church of Corinth is that they would let the power of God inside of them tell the truth about them and let the authority of Jesus over their lives point out the things that are wrong and, and get those in line with who they are before Paul shows up. And he says, even if that means we show up and people think we're weak, I'm okay with that because it will have been what, what needed to happen anyways. In many ways, quiet authority exhibited in submission that leads to maturity is more powerful than overt authority exhibited outside of submission and in rebellion. And that's what we want for each one of us and every person in our church, that we would be submitted to, to the authority of Jesus through the leaders of our church, and we would be, be moving on to maturity. Paul says we rejoice when we ourselves are weak. We're really happy when you don't have to see us demonstrate our authority, but you are strong. You're, you're demonstrating the power of God in, in proceeding on to look like Jesus. And we pray that you would be made complete in that work. It says, I'm writing these things while absent so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority the Lord has given me. It says, I don't want to have to be overt and, and be severe with you because God gave me authority to build you up, not to tear you down. So maturity starts as we tell the truth about ourselves. And maturity requires Authority. And the third thing is that maturity is truly shaping our being. That's what it is. Maturity is shaping who you are, and it impacts every part of your life. See in verse 11, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Those don't sound like things you can, you can do. They're not actions that you take. They're there's something you have to become. And I don't really know how to explain that better other than to say, I can't just say, like, rejoice. And you say, okay, yeah, everything sucks, but I'm just totally going to, like, rejoice, and I'm going to muster up rejoicing. I can't muster up being comforted. I can't muster up being like-minded with the people in the church. I've got to be that. I have to become that as the Spirit of God and the leaders in my life work and move and, and shape who I am. One other point on authority that I think is really crucial. Um, I said each one of us has to receive it. We've got to be under someone's authority. Um, but God has also created the church in such a way that, that you and I also get the opportunity to help distribute maturity to other people. And, and this is the heart of the Great Commission, right? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go, therefore, in the power and the authority of Jesus and make disciples. Not, not convert some people, get them to life, and that's nice, and leave them out to hang. It's make disciples, fully mature disciples of Jesus. We want to move them on to maturity. And each one of us has a part to play in that. And if that's a little apprehensive for you, if that's like, that's weird, I don't know that I have much to offer them, um, you're right. 
Like, you are weak, but Christ is strong in you. And you don't have to have it all figured out. Your job is not to move them all the way to maturity. But if you're a step ahead of them on the journey of maturity and becoming like Jesus, you, you can turn around and say, hey, like, I took this step. And it worked. And I'm, with, I'm a little closer to Jesus than I was. And you can help someone who's not as far along in the journey of maturity as you are get further along in the journey of maturity. Your job is not to do everything for them, but to do what you can to show them Jesus. So following Jesus is a journey of becoming, not a journey of doing. And the result is that Jesus is, is radiated out of who we are as we mature, as we embrace our weakness, as we sit under authority, and as we let God transform who we are, Jesus is glorified because he is shown powerfully in our lives. Paul says at the end of, 11, at the end of verse 11, he says, the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace will be with you. And that, that's what we want. That's what we need. And that itself is what's going to affect the change in our lives. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, this is affection. There should be affection in the church of Jesus. Um, if you're interested in historical context, this was typically like men to men and women to women, like, hey, brother, love you, kiss, not like weird anything. Um, but that becoming like Jesus means that we have affection for one another. One of the problems in the church in Corinth is that they were fighting against each other. They didn't like each other. They weren't sharing what they had. They had no affection because they weren't truly who God had made them to be. And he says, all the saints greet you. Cool. Everybody's, everybody's saying, hey. They're excited to see you continue to grow up in Jesus. It's the question on the table for us this morning is who are you? Who are you? Who am I? Who are we truly? And are we going to let that truth about us define our lives? Or are we going to lie about who we are? Are we going to reject the authority of God and the authority of the leaders in the church? And are we, are we going to stagnate in our journey of becoming like Jesus? So we're coming to the table this morning um, to remember what Jesus has done for us. And if you've trusted Jesus, you get to partake and, and to remember him. And as we do that this morning, I just, I want to challenge us in a, in a pretty, I don't know, formal way, but I want to challenge you to test yourself. Because that's, that's one of the things this is for, is to pick up the, the broken body of Jesus that was broken because of your sin and to, to pick up a cup with the, what represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out on, on your behalf to make you new and to say, who am I? This is what Jesus is. This is who he says he is. This is what he has done. But, but who am I? Am I, am I a- acknowledging the truth about it? Do I, am I in line with the truth of who Jesus is? You need to test yourself. Examine yourself. And I want to give you six ways to do that, because sometimes it's really ethereal, and you're like, what, what do I do? I mean, yeah, sure, I guess, maybe. Um, but very seriously and somberly, I think there's six ways that we need to test ourselves. And the first one is, is the position question. It's, do you believe in Jesus? Honestly, do you believe in Jesus? Are you alive? And again, not a question designed to, to make you doubt, but a question to, to build assurance in you as, you as you hold the bread and you hold the cup and say, Jesus died, I believe this, I'm saved, I'm with him forever. Once that question's answered, rock on. Like, awesome. Remember Jesus, that's great. But remember that there's also this practice, and that's what the other five things are designed to, uh, to get at. The first, first way you test yourself, do I believe in Jesus? The second way to help determine how far along you are in the progress of your maturity is to pay attention to your actions. To this morning, think back on the past week. What did you do? Because what you do comes from who you are. And it's going to give you some pretty good clarity on who you are truly. So who are you? Look at what you've done and let that evaluate, give, give you some insight into who you are. Third one, um, Ask the question, does what you know and believe line up with what God says? Are you agreeing with God in specific areas of your life? 
Or are you disagreeing with God and trying to make your own rules? That'll give you some extreme clarity about where you are in this journey of maturity. Fourth thing you should do is you should evaluate the outcomes of your relationships, interactions, and, and, and your presence with people. And so I'm not talking about like the direct interaction, like how nice you were to someone or um, that, that you did good for someone. That, that, that's good, but we already talked about the doing. I want you to think about what came of that. Like, it, generally, um, when, you, when you show up in a room of people, do they, do, they, do they like you? Not that we're supposed to be liked, but do they, like, is there affection there? Have you been genuine and nice and caring and generous to them in, in the long haul that's resulted in a strong relationship with that person? Have you been able to share the gospel with them? And what has their response been to that? So think a little bit past what you've done to kind of the, the outcome of your actions and what that has accomplished for you. The fifth thing, and you may not be able to do it this morning, but would be to ask someone who's in authority over your life, like, who am I and how am I doing? You have to have a mentor or someone who's in authority over your life to be able to do that. So um, that'd be an important first step. But um, ask somebody else, because other people who love us often have really keen perspective on how we're doing um, in our walk with Jesus and who we truly are. And the last one, the sixth way to test yourself is this. It's to ask the Holy Spirit to test you. Before you ask that question, just make sure you're ready to hear what he's going to say. Because um, the Holy Spirit will truly search your heart. He will reveal to you what is there. And you have to be willing to tell the truth about yourself before that starts. But that's also something you can ask him to accomplish in you. Is Holy Spirit, please help me tell the truth about myself and show me what the truth is. And just a note on that, if if you're asking the Holy Spirit to tell you whether you're in the faith or not to test you, you're probably in the faith in a alive, dead sense, because dead people don't ask the Holy Spirit to, to show them things. So that's what I'm going to ask us to do for the first five, six minutes of open time. We're going to sing a song, and then um, we just ask that, that you sit and examine yourself, um, that you ask some of these questions, that you say, God, would you test me? Would, would you help me examine myself and determine whether or not I'm in the faith? So it'll be quiet, and that'll be weird for some people. It'll be glorious for other people. Um, but just want you to think and reflect. Um, and kind of at the end of that five or six minutes, um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'd love to open it up to our, our open time and share about the things you love about Jesus, what you've, what you've known, what you've seen, things he's done in your life, maybe what he's shown you in, in those moments of reflection and examining yourself that, that can be shared and should be shared with the church. But the purpose of this is maturity, that we would become the people that God wants us to be. And in doing so, we would reflect the truth about God to a dying and lost world and people would come to life and there would be more people like Jesus made in his image, conformed into his image and God would be glorified. So let me pray for us and then we'll move into open time. Father, for me, it is often very difficult to dig down and evaluate who I am I much prefer to think about what I do, uh, what I say, the friends I have, the relationships I'm in, and how good or not so good those would be. Um, but Father, you say that you look at the heart, you look deep within us to who we truly are, and so we want to be a people who are, who are pleasing to you. We want to be mature. We want to be conformed to the image of Jesus in every way. And Father, to do that, you're going to have to do some work in our hearts and in our lives because the truth about each one of us is that we are still full of sin. We are still prideful. We are still trying to, to do life on our own despite the salvation, the love and the grace that you've shown towards us. So God, I just pray that in these next few minutes is um, each one of us asks you to search our hearts and to examine us God, that your spirit would, would, would move in power, that, that he would make the reality of our salvation if we have indeed trusted in you 
strong in us. And it's that, that power that comes from your spirit that would shape us into the image of Jesus. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that is still dead in their sins, God, I, I just pray to you that your spirit would, would examine that, would, would reveal that. You'd help them tell the truth about themselves and trust in Jesus for the first time and come to life forever in him. Father, we want to be, be pleasing to you. We want to be mature. We are so grateful for your love shown towards us in Jesus. Thank you.